Welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carvel. I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. We're continuing to stay at home. James is out in the Shenandoah. I'm here right next to American University and our sponsors, Sign Institute, who we miss seeing in person. This week, we have two terrific journalists on who will have different takes uh, on this awful COVID-19 pandemic. But first, please subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. James, our guest is one of the fabled Washington journalists, Michael Tackett, the Deputy Bureau Chief of the Associated Press in charge of all White House congressional and political coverage. Before that, he was uh, with the Chicago Tribune, and I was lucky enough to work with him for five years at Bloomberg News. He had great training for covering Donald Trump because when he was a student, James, at Indiana University, he covered Bobby Knight. So Mike Tackett, thank you for being with us. Hey, good to be here. Let me just start off. Uh, we'll talk uh, about some politics in a minute. But AP has bureaus all over the world, all over the United States, obviously. Uh, how are you covering this pandemic um, uh, crisis? How does it, I mean, is, are there things you bring to bear that probably no one else has as far as resources? So what do you do? I think it's a, it's a, it's a function of both speed and depth. So there's speed in that there are people everywhere and they can report instantaneously on the events, but then there's depth where we can kind of connect the dots in ways that others can't simply because they don't have the staff in various parts of the world. So I looked back and, you know, the first AP story ran on December the 31st from Wuhan, China, uh, you know, sort of a benign report that maybe there was this troubling virus starting. And then look at where we are today, where sometimes we put out 900 stories a week on the very subject. Well, it gives you a certain advantage, too, as far as the president is concerned, especially for fact-checking him, because even though you have fact-checkers here and you've done some terrific fact-checking pieces, when he makes assertions about other countries, Korea and the like, uh, you have the ability to quickly respond to that, too. There's absolute expertise in so many corners of the globe, and so it's a real comparative advantage. Well, I mentioned in the introduction that you have uh, certain expertise in um, covering someone like Trump, uh, thinking back to Bobby Knight days, Bobby Knight was a bully who went after the press all the time. Trump the other day went after one of your reporters. Uh, uh, is it Kevin Fairkin? I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. Kevin Frecking, Kevin, yes. Kevin mm-hmm. Frecking, who asked a perfectly legitimate question about a, a piece that AP had done on the lack of preparation. So how do you handle it? When uh, Trump goes after one of your people like that, the way he has you, Michelle Sindor and Jonathan Carl and others. Well, to be honest, I think you sit in the chair and you take it and you try not to make the story about you. Uh, You fact check what you can. In this particular case, Kevin was simply asking a question about a story that was based on U.S. government purchase orders. So it was unassailable in terms of its accuracy. And at some point, you just sort of hope that the discerning public, you know, sort of lets these uh, kind of assertions that come from the podium uh, fall of their own weight. And, and, and quickly, and we'll go to James, but quickly, what did that, just summarize what that story about purchasing said. It said that um, the federal government had really done a very inadequate job of ordering supplies and didn't even start to do so until March. So this is when we knew from health experts starting mid to late January and then certainly into February that there was going to be a coming problem and that inventory was going to be a problem. And yet the government was sort of slow footed uh, to set that in motion to try to replenish the stockpiles. So Mike, what, what that, is that the thing that, uh, that 
the Trump administration, actually somebody the administration did, and they surveyed the hospitals. And that was what they came up with. Right. The pre, yeah. and, and so the idea is, and, you know, you're, it's the government, so you have to have a purchasing contract. So what we did was we got the records of the purchasing contracts to show, you know, a timeline of when it happened. And in a story like this, the chronology is everything. You know, what happened when? And that was simply what the reporter was doing, was asking a very basic fact-based question. This is the most non-ideological question one could ask. And we saw what the answer right. was. So I just on the Bobby Knight Trump thing, there's some important differences. I mean, they're both, you know, world-class jerks. They're both narcissistic. But I'm not sure Bobby Knight is a career criminal. <laughs> and I, I don't think, I don't, I hear a lot of things that you could say about Bobby Knight's coaching career. Incompetent is not one right. of them. He also was a winner. He's a, he's a competent, a highly competent basketball coach. That he was. There's no question about that. Yeah, and I don't. Have, I have a lot of evidence that he's a jerk. I don't have any evidence that he's a criminal. So, I, 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 not very much. It's kind of odd that I'm defending Bobby Knight, but I'm defending Bobby Knight. He's he matches up with Trump on one out of three. Well, I will defend him in the sense that I will say that it was a formative experience that certainly prepared me for a career covering politicians. <laughs> he would scream at you. He did. Uh, and that was uh, it was kind of funny. Like one time he told uh, the guy I was with that he was going to throw him through the blank wall uh, if he didn't get out of the gym. And so, you know, you hear that when you're a college kid, uh, you sort of sit up and take notice coming from an authority figure like Knight. Uh, but then you sort of learn to roll with it. And, uh, you know, we didn't tell anybody. We didn't make a big deal out of it. We just sort of let it happen. So I'd ask both of y'all this question. If, if, and I kind of watch. I, I leave Fox on one of the televisions. If anything, I watched a crawl. They are 75% on these anti-malaria drugs. And they had uh, Dr. Hesseltine, who is, you know, hard, whatever, and said, why are they placing so much in this? And why do they think that this is going to be so helpful to Trump? It, both of you, I'd just like for you to speculate on that. Because from one sense, it doesn't make much, much sense to me. Well, first of all, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there were roughly 300 mentions of this sort of experimental drug therapy that the president has been promoting from, from the White House. Uh, 300 some mentions on Fox News about this. I guess one, one theory would be is that, you know, if there's a magic bullet, you know, that's what he's going to gravitate to or something that's seen as a magic bullet. And you think about over our history and think about over the times that have been health crises or diseases or illnesses, uh, the idea of the magic elixir you know, has great appeal in the moment. The problem here is, is that it will soon be tested one way or another. If it works, terrific. A lot of people will certainly benefit from it, but there's a reason that there's a testing regimen for drugs, which is what Dr. Fauci keeps saying again and again. Well, I agree with Mike. Uh, I, I don't think it's ever going to totally work or not work. It's going to be more mixed. It probably isn't going to be very important in treatment. There was a a great specialist in that anti-malaria disease, uh, uh, Dan at Duke, who I saw in an interview today, uh, said that he thinks that whatever benefits there are, there will be an equal number of bad effects. People get heart attacks, people have vision problems with it, uh, and that his son was an uh, emergency room doctor in New York where they have used it, and he said his son anecdotally can't tell any difference between those that take it and those that don't. I suspect even after clinical trials, it'll be something like that. What Trump is looking, Trump, it is a distraction, a diversion for Trump, just like the World Health Organization is, just like Obama is, uh, just like the Chinese flu is. 
because the alternative to a distraction or a diversion, James, is accepting personal responsibility. Uh, and uh, Trump is a mortal enemy of that. Right. But, but if you look at I mean, uh, if you look at the data this morning, it's obviously it's not working for him. And I don't think he's capable of handling any other way but, but what he's been doing, which is appealing to, you know, 38 percent of the country. Well, as we go forward for this, I mean, one of the things he's done, he's chosen to put himself out in front on this. You know, it was marketed at first as the vice president was the chairman of this task force. And, and even their first briefing, they announced that the vice president would be coming out to talk to the press. And then the president came out and sort of took center stage and he hasn't left since. So the challenge is going to be as we go forward, especially for the next couple of weeks, when uh, everyone seems to agree the news will not be good. Um, the ownership stake in what's going on, uh, it would seem to me, increases for him. Yeah. I, I, and, you know, for the life of me, uh, and I'm, it's him because he can't, it's, it's impossible. But if he had just put General McChrystal in charge of this thing in, you know, mid to late January, it'd be an entirely different trajectory. And then if it, if it goes poorly, you can blame General McChrystal. You, but right now, he's out front and he's taking every bullet and they're coming and it's not helping at all. And so I want to segue to the look, what the coming fight right now is over voter access. And Albert's been on this for a long time. And it's absolutely in terms of politics, I think it's an absolute correct way to go. Uh, yesterday, I had my LSU class, Garrett Grace, who's a Republican congressman from 6th District, Louisiana, who is the first Republican to admit that climate is caused by human activity. All right. He, he, he's a knowledgeable guy. He's kind of outdoorsy guy. He was very deaf, very good with the students. And then they asked him about ballot access. And he went all in on voter fraud. And I mean, I was sitting there going, oh, my God. And I, I, I think that the Republicans have correctly deduced that there's no way that they're going to win this election with anything remotely uh, approaches fair ballot access. And the Supreme Court, the reason they wanted to have this election, this Democratic primary, was because there was an election for the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and no one can be a walking in vote. And this is going to be, in, in, so Graves says, James, I hope you tell the Democrats, you know, to just have a clean bill on aid uh, on the next trillion dollars and don't include this. And I said to myself, I'm not going to tell them anything because I think they ought to include it. But how, is this, how can this reconcile itself? I mean, both of you have been covering this stuff for a long, long time. Well, I would take a first whack at it and say that, you know, the, the idea here of the voter fraud has been something that we've heard from Donald Trump for a long time, including the absolutely false claim that there were three million votes illegally cast in 2016. So we know that this has been part of the imperative as we go forward. But I would say that it seems to me that the burden here is on the Democrats. If they think that um, the Republicans are doing this, then it's up to them to come up with the effective counter, because it seems that if you say that you're trying to deny somebody sort of the most basic and important civic right of the right to vote, uh, that should have resonance with the public. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, the greatest refutation of the fraudulence of the voter fraud claims is that Trump appointed a special commission headed by Mike Pence and Chris Kobach to look out, ferret out all the voter fraud in America. And they basically disbanded because they couldn't find any. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a total red herring. 
I think the problem is more complicated, though, Michael, because uh, Mitch McConnell, I think, will do anything to prevent sufficient funds being given to the states. What they ought to do is Congress ought to appropriate another, I don't know, $2 billion and give the money to the states. The states decide. Some states- Can I interrupt for breaking news? It just splashed on my screen that, that, that Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the 2020 presidential race. I, 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 I didn't get the source. It's just one of those things that popped up. So I, I, I you know, I'd caution- uh, CNN is reporting that, yes. Okay. All right. Not a surprise, but good news for good news for Democrats because it had to happen soon. But uh, in any event, and we'll come back to that in just a second. Uh, they the, the money ought to be given to the states to then improve their voting access, early voting, more venues, easier voting, making sure you didn't have crowded gymnasiums or churches and long lines, vote by mail whenever possible. And the Republicans shouldn't oppose that because you're given to the states. So if it's a state like Florida that they control, they probably won't do a very good job. But Mitch McConnell will do anything to stop that. I don't think there's any question that McConnell will do that. Um, Right. Let's go to, I mean, let's go to Bernie Sanders. James, I think that's fascinating. And and let's just assume it's true. But a larger question, Mike, is in charge of AP political coverage. This was supposed to be, I mean, April the 8th. I mean, that is... That's a hey. That's the, the the cycle. We're right at the top of it. I mean, you you know this is. And what do your political reporters do now? How do they cover Joe Biden? Well, I mean, this is this is the real challenge because you try to see what the climate is, and you try to see what the climate is in terms of uh, does Biden really not benefit by does it hurt him rather to not be out there campaigning, or does it not hurt him? Does it does it in some senses? make it easier, make the campaign shorter, more compressed. Um, nobody out in the country right now is longing for somebody to be out uh, on the hustings. I think that probably 90% of the electorates probably made up their mind one way or the other already anyway. So the campaign's for a very small segment of the electorate. So we're trying to understand the strategic calculations there that Biden's going to do. We're also going to look and see, you know, what is Biden going to propose as the alternative? Um, we, we see what the president's proposed for this recovery. What is Biden proposing? Why is it different? How is it different? You know, and how will they try to market that? Clearly, uh, you know, Biden needs some help from, from people like Bernie Sanders. He needs help from Sanders in a couple of ways. One, to get Sanders uh, to help him elevate his own sort of social media program. Sanders is very good at that. He's very good at live streaming. He's very good at messaging and he's very good at fundraising. Those are all things that the Biden campaign needs to benefit from, from Bernie Sanders, if they can forge that alliance. So we'll be looking at that. We're also going to see what Democrats are saying now. What are the interest groups saying? Many of them, you've probably seen some of the ads, have already gone after uh, President Trump using Trump in his own words to try to make the case that it's sort of he was asleep, asleep at the switch while all this was going on or was in complete denial while all this was going on. So what, what kind of legislation would the Democrats do to from the federal level to protect ballot access that could deal with the kind of issue that we we just had in Wisconsin? Or, or is it impossible to deal with that if the states control it and the courts let them do it, they can do whatever they want? Yeah, I think it's more the latter, James. But they can give the states a bunch of money and they need a lot of money. But not only do they need the money, they need it now. You cannot ramp up this kind of stuff in a matter of weeks. That They have to start now. And what that means is there will be unequal results. Some states, uh, uh, North Carolina, for instance, 
where they now, where the Democrats now have the uh, the governorship and they control the state election board. They can do a lot. They can do a lot of things that weren't done last time. Michigan can, Pennsylvania can, Florida and Wisconsin, the states where the Republicans control uh, the legislature, the governor's uh, office, are probably going to have a lot harder time. I don't think there can be very many federal mandates. I may be wrong on that. We can ask people like Fred Wertheimer, but I think it's basically giving states the resources to do things like they've never done before. Michael, you want to weigh in? Well, this would be really strategic too, right? Especially, I think you really hit right on it with North Carolina, a state like that where there's a chance that maybe they can do something. Certainly a state like Pennsylvania where Governor Tom Wolf would would no doubt embrace something like this. Wisconsin is going to be more difficult for the reasons that we saw just play out in the Wisconsin primary with the division between the governor and the state legislature. But it's a pretty basic civic argument to make that one should be able to cast a ballot. And the idea um, of mail-in ballots being subject to fraud, there's just so much evidence to show that that's not true. And you can look no further than the state of Oregon, which has had mail-in ballots for a long time, very clean elections. You never see real complaints about yeah. the integrity of the elections there. Uh, James, you want to you wanna talk a little bit of baseball before we go? I would love to talk a little bit of baseball before we go. Well, Mike Tackett is as fanatical a fan as we are and probably brings more expertise. He's the author of a book, The Baseball Whispers, and his son works for the Los Angeles Dodgers. So, Mike, tell us... Can baseball really start, as they're saying today, in Arizona without any fans and begin as early as May? Well, first of all, today would be the Nats and Marlins. So that's the game that we're missing, uh, just so you know. Uh, with respect to Arizona, you know, they do, from a facilities point of view, they can do it. They have lots of major league ready fields there. Um, but what this is really going to take is the agreement of the players' union. Because players are going to have to say a couple things. One, they're willing to put themselves at some risk. And two, they're willing to quarantine themselves from their families. And the second half of that might be even uh, more difficult for some of them to do. Uh, You also are probably going to have to have a problem with the umpires. Because will the umpires like the idea of having a machine called balls and strikes and sort of prove their functional obsolescence if if it's deemed a success? All that said, there's a huge imperative for this to start because people would find it a great relief. No doubt the television ratings of these games would be very, very robust, but you'd also have to create, you know, a significant quarantine protocol that the players union and the owners could agree to. So they would play, but what, yeah, I mean, okay, I guess you have to play a lot of night ball in Arizona in July. Or you, you know, you can use the Diamondbacks, Stadium, which is a dome, but that's only you know so many games a day that you can that's do. That. One, I guess you could play three games a day in there if you yeah, had if to. Yeah, you had to. And uh, you know they do play there year round. Uh, it's not comfortable. Uh, my son's done a lot of scouting out there uh, during the summer months, and you really have to you have to be careful. No matter what they tell you, you never get used to 110 degrees. No, no, and they say it's a dry heat. No, no, it's hot, man. <laughs> if it's 117 in Phoenix. With no, you know, little humidity, and it's 93 in your arms with a lot of humidity, it's still hot at 117 degrees. I promise you. Oh, my wife had us take a summer vacation in Arizona one time, and I can, I can second James Garbo. It is hot. Mike, is your son getting any guidance from the Dodgers that you can share? Uh, no, but he, he's telling me that he's really looking at a lot of video of players from the Dominican Republic uh, from previous seasons. So they're, they're getting their reports in, just not in the usual way. 
Well, the Dodgers are one team that has a lot at stake because uh, they have the biggest new investment in baseball, or at least along with the Yankees and Cole and Mookie Betts, whose contract expires this year. And it'd be a hell of a thing if they uh, have Mookie Betts for only one year. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? That would just that that, you know, don't rain the bad news here, Al. Hey, James, I think with a limited season, uh, a shortened season, rather, advantages the Nationals. Okay. Just I think our pitching rotation, uh, you know, may not, uh, you know, may fare better. We won't have to go as deep into a season. I, I, just a theory. Uh, what do you guys think? I think that's, that's absolutely right because the starting pitching, you know, has less time to break down and older players have less time to break down. And so guys like Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Ryan Zimmerman, uh Kurt Suzuki, you know, some of the older guys, Howie Kendrick. Um, the fewer games they have to play, the better for the Nats. See, one of the ideas that people had is you would play seven-inning doubleheaders like they do in college, and you would space the games out more. And you would probably have to do that if you play in Arizona. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you want to keep the integrity of the game, obviously, uh, but this is going to be an asterisk season no matter what. And on the other hand, Boy, what a boost that would be for people if they could do it safely. You know, so this afternoon, you know, Albert could be watching baseball. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, as important as your job is, Tackett, I think you'd have an eye uh, on that screen, too. All right. Maybe one eye. Mike Tackett, thank you so much. This has really been, it's not only been interesting, but it's been fun and important. It's just fun. Anytime, you know, we should be the try host. It's it's a lot of (laughs) fun. Great to be with you guys. Thanks very much. Our next guest is really one of the terrific journalists in America over the last, I can't believe I'm saying this, Joanne, the last 37 or 38 years. Uh, she was the editor-in-chief at USA Today. Uh, she, uh, and I think most importantly, to me at least, she was a, a editor par excellence at the Wall Street Journal. Front page, weekend edition, deputy managing editor. And she's now the Distinguished Journalism Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Joanne, you're terrific to be with us. And you have written just a fascinating piece because for all the justifiable focus on the huge healthcare demands that this uh, coronavirus is, 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 is foisting on the uh, doctors and nurses and emergency room respondents and orderlies, you point out that there's another casualty that's going on that that namely a lot of people who need health care for other diseases uh, can't get it, that we said we were going to do away with elective surgery uh, in order to uh, accommodate uh, the COVID-19 patients. But elective surgery uh, is not just replacing uh, knees or cosmetic surgery, right? Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So this was a, a surprise to me. I think it's a surprise to a lot of people. And I want to say, first of all, thanks for having me. It is really great to be with you, Al and James. Um, but I, this is such an important issue, and it needs much more widespread attention because this will be our next health crisis, and it could rival the health crisis that we're in right now. So the issue here is we've all heard elective surgery, elective procedures have been canceled in virtually every state, almost almost the majority of states. And those procedures we tend to think of as like a knee replacement, a facelift, a tummy tuck. But in fact, elective surgery, what it actually means by definition is any surgery that was scheduled, which means 
every cancer surgery, organ transplants, cardiac surgery, all of these life-saving procedures, bone marrow transplants, they are all put on hold and in some cases put on hold indefinitely. Um, and, and it's now been about um, almost a month. It was first, um, it was the American College of Surgeons put out its first advisory on March 13th. So we're talking almost a month and now we're looking forward another at least few weeks, maybe another month. Uh, so the, the damage to these people is incalculable, right? Th these are supposedly surgeries that um, as, the, as the, uh, the surgery, the American College of Surgeons says we should do no harm. But the fact is that uh, you've got patients, I've heard heartbreaking stories of people who are in need of transplants, people who are in you know, serious stages of cancer who are not being treated. I mean, if you think about it, and I looked at these stats for, you know, how many surgeries do we typically have in, in a typical month, there's more than a million, um, a million people have surgery. So think of the hundreds of thousands or millions of surgeries that are going to be kicked down the road. So first of all, you've got people who are in dire straits, um, whose health is deteriorating while they're waiting. Um, secondly, when it's kick down the road, there's going to be a tremendous backlog when they can start these surgeries again. And then you add to that, the other element of this is what's been canceled. What's been canceled are not just the surgeries, but the preventive screenings. So we're talking mammograms, um, colonoscopies, uh, prostate cancer screening, all of these things. And if you look just at cancer alone, not at any other cardiac, any other kinds of disease, um, last year, Per month, on average, there are 150,000 people diagnosed every month for cancer alone. So again, those people now aren't being diagnosed. So that gets kicked down the road. Uh, it's a it's a huge issue and one that I think because you know we are rightfully focused on COVID for for good reason. Uh, but I think that this is really falling by the wayside. So some a few weeks ago, I. I had occasion to talk to, let's just describe it as a very, very senior person at Mount Sinai in, in, in Manhattan. And they have 24 ambulatory care centers. And that's where the hospital makes its money. They shut them down, right? So, so Mount Sinai has, can operate maybe two months. And so, and, and you compound that from hospitals all over the country. And I'm talking about you know, rural health care is something I obviously care about because I grew up rural. They're not going to, what they're going to need to stay in business is going to be like unbelievable because the way that they make money, you know, it is, is this surgeries and colonoscopies and, and, and hips and knees and, you know, they're not even doing cataract surgery now. I heard yesterday, yes, that's exactly right. I heard yesterday from a Midwestern um, physician who told me that uh, local hospitals, because those elective surgeries actually are where these hospitals make their money. This is how they earn their keep. And um, he had already taken a pay cut. There were a number of hospitals and doctors that are now um, having to take pay cuts. And he said, you know, these local hospitals, it's sort of the, akin to the local newspaper situation. These local hospitals, these smaller community hospitals, some of them are not going to make it through as a result of this. They're going to have to get a massive bailout. That's the only thing you can do? Yeah. I mean, if you close down, if you close the hospital down in Abbeville, Louisiana, you just can't do that. Right, right. I mean, you just can't. 
Right. Be, you have people suffering and dying in the street. James, I would recommend to everyone Joanne's column in ProPublica uh, because it really is, it's just, it's eye-opening. Tell us the story about Mary Cardoza, the doctor in San Francisco you talked to, Joanne. Sure, sure. So Mary Cardoza is a, she's a San Francisco Bay Area surgeon. And she told me that she has multiple breast cancer patients right now. She cannot operate on any of them because breast cancer surgery is considered, again, elective because it is a scheduled surgery. And when I spoke to her, she was on her way and she'd been doing a lot of telemedicine, as many doctors are with her patients, right, to avoid exposing them um, to an office situation. But when I spoke to her, she was actually on her way into her office to see these patients in person. And she said, she said, she said, literally, I, I don't want to by phone or by telemedicine, I don't want to break the news to these patients that I have no idea when I'm going to be able to operate on them. That even though they've been diagnosed with cancer and they do need to be operated on, I have no idea when I'm going to be able to do so. So she said she's, she's scheduling them all for appointments a month from now, but she still doesn't know whether she'll be able to operate on them at that point. Um, so, you know, in her case, she said she, she's treating them with, with hormones. They're all, she's in a very fortunate position with these patients because they have a cancer that responds to hormones. That's not the case for, um, for many cancers and for many breast cancers. And, and those are the situations. I heard the heartbreaking stories from people after this piece ran, people with, um, you know, uh, chemotherapy that's been interrupted. I mean, serious, serious surgeries that's just been shut down. Transplants, I mean, those, that, that's what's terrifying. One, one of the really, um, what's, what's so tragic about this situation is the problem here is not that the hospitals are necessarily overrun with COVID patients. That is the case with a few hospitals in hot spots like New York. But in the vast majority of the country, that's not the problem. The problem is this lack of protective gear that we have been hearing about and talking about. They don't want the hospitals want to reserve protective gear for potential COVID patients and for the physicians treating potential COVID patients. You use a lot of protective gear in these surgeries. Transplants in particular, there's a lot of blood transfusion. They're, they use a ton of this kind of protective gear. And, um, and they're trying to ration the protective gear. And well, how tragic is that? That, that it, it just seems so barbarian, barbaric, that that's a reason why we can't give people necessary life-saving surgery. I read a story the other day, Joanne, Duke Hospital, one of the great hospitals in America, uh, a cancer patient, wanted to go in and he had to have some procedures done. They couldn't do them. And, and this is a guy who'd gotten a bad, back a bad test. They couldn't do them because it requires a mask and gloves, and they didn't have sufficient mask and gloves there in order to treat patients like that. Exactly, exactly. And then you add to that, you know, there's also the concerns of, of um, for patients who are immunocompromised, right, of, of having them in the hospitals. And again, this is lack of testing. We don't know who may have the virus. And so therefore, these patients who are immunocompromised because they have cancer or they've undergone chemo or whatever, um, they're afraid to have them come into the hospitals to, to, to get the treatments because they don't know who may be carrying the virus. 
So it's really, it's again, it's this sort of the domino effect of the country's lack of preparedness or lack of protective equipment, lack of testing that is going to end up hurting all of these patients. And, and James, as you point out, also hurting a lot of these particularly smaller hospitals. So let, let's just assume for the sake of assuming, because we don't know, but let, let's assume we get an all clear on June the 22nd. How, so how are they going to decide? Because of the, the backlog of like cancer surgeries, the backlog of, of everything that people have been putting off, but you're not just going to be able to call and get a room at, at San Francisco General Hospital or whatever it is. You're not just going to be able to call and, 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 you know, get a room at Cook County Hospital. I mean, there's going to have some terrible triage that's going to have to go on as to who gets scheduled when to do what they have to do. You know, there's already there's already triage going on. I mean, the 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 American College of Surgeons it sends out these regular bulletins, and the one from last week it sends it out to all the doctors' hospitals. The one from last week um, gave guidelines, triage guidelines. That's what the bulletin was called: triage for cancer and cardiac and pediatric patients, which is just. And then, yeah, you're you're absolutely right, James. If you push this out until June, let's say, then you have this massive backlog of millions of potentially millions of surgeries, plus all of that preventive care that hasn't been done. Right. So, so you, you, your doctor friend in, in San Francisco, she's got a bunch of backed up breast cancer surgeries she has to do. Well, the urologist has a, a bunch of backed up prostate cancer he's got to do. The pulmonologist has a bunch of backed up, you know, procedures that they got to do to, to, to you name it, that, that, have the same number of operating rooms that they had before they started. Right. And that's right. going to be a, a, a public health fiasco. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I was felt it was so important to talk about this right now, because we have to focus on this. I know that like, you know, particularly the medical community, 150%, you know, focus on COVID which is appropriate. But on the other hand, you know, there are surgery centers, there are uh, surgeons, it's Dr. Cardoza, who, you know, she's at home, she's not operating, she could be, she could be operating on these patients. That's, that's, to me is what's what is is so tragic about this entire situation is it's this doesn't have to be this is just a side effect of how ill prepared that we have been for a pandemic. Well, you know what, 10 years ago, when they passed Congress passed the Affordable Health Care Act. Some right-wingers demagogued about death panels and uh, and everything. The fact of the matter is now uh, that we are going to have to ration. We've always rationed health care to a degree, some by some degree by, by price, cost, and affordability. But we're going to have to do a lot more of it now, and it's almost unavoidable, isn't it, Joanne? I, it does seem that way. Look, we're already essentially rationing health care, and, uh, and we're already engaged in triage. Um, I, I heard from a from a, a cancer patient after the piece ran. She said that you know she was able to get she's got you know a fourth recurrence of her of her breast cancer. It's in her bones. She was she was allowed to get into this oncological surgery a week ago only because her bones were about to shatter. And then she said that her doctor told her that she was the last patient because that 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 oncological surgeon was being. Um, you know, redirected into COVID. So uh, you think about, you know, how, 
dire the situation needs to be. The, the guidelines that um, the American College of Surgeons sent out basically said if you're a hospital where you have a heavy COVID load and you have a shortage of PPE and ventilators and ICU beds, then you shouldn't be operating at all unless the patient is likely to die within the next few hours or days. Now that's talk about rationing health care and, and death panels. I mean, that's just really terrifying. It, this whole, uh, are you keeping up with this World Health Organization thing yeah. very much? Can, can you explain to me and to Al and to, to our listeners uh, just a little what the World Health Organization is and what is it that Trump is trying to say? And to the best of your knowledge, what are the facts? Um, I think you would know as well as I do on, you know, the World Health Organization. Uh, as far as I can tell, it just looks like Trump is trying to shift blame to the World Health Organization for, you know, the the the, the lack of preparedness um, that we've had in this in, in the country. As far as I can tell. That's not their job to, to buy us ventilators and masks and testing kits, is it? Uh, not to my knowledge. Yeah, they, they weren't responsible for our, our unwillingness, inability uh, to respond in January and February uh, and start test, start ordering testing kits and ventilators and PPE equipment and everything. That was, that was the administration in Washington. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're, Joanne, you're absolutely right. I mean, he finds a new scapegoat every day. It's a WHO today, it was China yesterday, it was Obama two days ago, everybody but Trump. Um, right. You, 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 this is a really important piece. I want to encourage everyone to read it. Joanne, I think one of the reasons, besides being the great reporter and writer you are, I think the piece was all the more powerful because you are a breast cancer survivor. And I imagine you could just just envision what it would have been like if you had to go through what some breast cancer uh, patients are going through right now. A hundred percent. So when I was diagnosed, which was a, you know, a number of years ago, I was within, I was in surgery within days and my treatments were started within days. And, you know, when you're, when you're diagnosed with a disease like that um, and you know that it is in you, right. All you want to do is like, get it out, right? Get this thing out of me. And you've got the anxiety and the fear, um, the fear of the unknown. And uh, the, the, the thought that if you're diagnosed today, your doctor has to say to you, well, yes, you have cancer. And yes, I can tell you how large the tumor is. I can tell you where your tumor is, but I can't take it out. Um, the, that thought that you've got this thing growing inside of you is just uh, to me, incomprehensible, um, and and the, you know the the ripple effects, incomprehensible. Yeah, it, like my wife has was scheduled to have hand surgery. She's got something her hands in real pain. Well, she can't have that. And there, a lot of people are, in, let's say, in, in, during this time, that's not the most serious thing you can have. But you but you can't you can't concentrate. You can't sleep. And so, what people will go to is tell their doctors. I, you, I can't have the surgery. You, you got to give me something for the pain. Well, we know what we know what can happen over a period of time. We're going to have millions of people that are going to become addicted to pain medication because it's the only way that they can survive until they can get 
I mean, some people are in, 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 in real, 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 real pain right now that can't get any relief. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We are very, very likely to, to see an increase in opioid addictions, um, you know, mental health issues, uh, all kind of stemming from from this. Um, but, you know, I do think we should also talk about, like, what can we do about it? Right. Because I, I think step one is just to raise this issue so that there's some broad awareness of what the issue is. You know, then we we have to be really vigilant in taming the crisis, obviously, um, as we are trying to do. But there's got to be a way to start reinstating these um, really life saving procedures and also the the preventive screenings. So I, I I think we can't just sort of wait until everything opens up and then suddenly try and, and, and address this backlog. And it does seem, you know, we have surgery centers that are basically closed down. We have, we have capacity and we have the, the doctors who are actually able to, to do these procedures. Um, so we, I think we have to have a much more, we have to make this, you know, put this issue at the forefront and start thinking about how do we get get back into starting to do these procedures again. That's such a good point. And I think the federal government has to play a major role here. First of all, in funding, we need a lot more resources. But secondly, just as is the case with the PPE equipment and everything else, what you're talking about, there may be a a surgical center in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, but they'll need a doctor from Indiana. And we've seen during the COVID-19 crisis, nurses and doctors have traveled all over the country. Uh, uh, to go to go all in, and we're going to need something like that to address this severe issue that you have raised, Joanne. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I think we can. It's just it takes focus, it takes recognition of the problem for starters, um, and then you know we can take it from there. Um, as long as we know uh, that that this has got to be a priority. If, if this isn't a priority, we will be reading stories and you know, seeing the, the horror stories on television of lives that could and should have been saved. You're already seeing sort of anecdotally, um, there was a, a, a guy in Vermont who was diagnosed with um, aggressive prostate cancer. He had his surgery on the books. They've now you know, canceled his surgery. And he said, they said it's elective. And he and, and the guy said, you know, he, he, he uh, talked to Vermont Public Radio and he said, you know, how is this elective? Right. It's aggressive cancer. How can that possibly be elective? His, his surgeon, when he was first diagnosed, said we can't put this off. And suddenly they put it off. Um, you hear stories about, you know, children. Um, there was a horrible story about a little girl born with half a heart who needs a heart procedure. Um, they can't do it suddenly. You know, people with liver transplants. There was a, a man who had a needed a liver transplant. Um, I believe this was on NBC. Uh, it was an anecdotal piece, but it was a it was a young man in his 30s. He was he was finally had been scheduled for this liver transplant that he needed, and then it was canceled. And he 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 said, you know, this is a death sentence for me. I mean, this is it's 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 so hard to believe that this is what's happening in. America. It just seems like we're in some sort of other third world country. You know, the more that you think about this, the temptation is not to think. Yeah. Which is a problem, right? Because we have to think about it because that's it's the only way we're going to solve it. I know. I know. It's just like if now I got to have enough on my mind. Oh, <laughs> and then every time you think about it, you think of something new. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. I mean, Joanne, you're so true. I mean, you know, I think of uh, 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 child abuse. Just think of yes. the child abuse there was before this and think of how much more there is now and think right. of how little we can do about it. But there's so many issues like that. But you have really brought to the fore, I think, one of the most important issues, and we're going to have to deal with it. And uh, boy, James, sure. we learned a lot this morning. We sure did. What a, what a, what a segment. And what, you know, thank God we got people like you that are out there trying to see around the corner. Well, thanks for having me, because actually the reason I wrote the piece is to hopefully get other journalists also to be thinking about this and, and also putting this top of mind for, you know, for the for the coverage of the COVID crisis. It's got to be one of the, the main issues that we're talking about. So thank you for having me. What, what a looking around the corner, you know, and, and I mean, like I say, the, the deeper you get into this thing, I, 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 just, I don't know if, if thing goes on another six, seven weeks, I don't know what's going to happen. Because I mean, it, the, the problems, it, it, it's just like the virus. It, 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 it's an exponential thing from child abuse to alcoholism to delayed surgeries to people not being at work to the economy to you name it. I mean, it, it, every day it, 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 you know, it gets progressively worse and you got to understand the law of geometric progression. It is, who knows where we're going to end up before this is. And, you know, it's not ridiculous to assume that we're going to have civil unrest somewhere or more than one place. That, that's not a ridiculous fear. And let me tell you something, we're not going back to the way it was. I mean, I, 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 I promise you that the disparities that have been exposed, you know, because when we had Katrina, we said, well, Katrina exposed the real racial disparities we have in this country. And, yeah, you know, the truth of the matter is a lot of coverage on it, and we didn't, it didn't change much. This is not just hitting one part of the country. And, and these numbers are, and Dr. Fauci to his credit, he deserved a lot of credit for a lot of things. Politics is going to be fundamentally different when this is over. And, you know, there's a, a, a guy running for, it's crazy, Braun outside of Atlanta is giving away AR-15 to protect you from the hordes coming from Atlanta. I mean, they, they're not being subtle about this at all. And I, I can tell you from, from that reaction of my students, which I think is pretty typical across the board, they're not, whatever it is, it's not going to be the way it was on, on February the 1st of 2020, I promise you. Well, I get the same thing from my students at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and I'm sure at AU it's the, uh, it's the same thing. Uh, it's not going to be. Sure. Just to close on a little bit higher note for you particularly, uh, it's not unexpected, but Bernie Sanders dropping out of the race, uh, it had to happen. The ha fact that's happened sooner rather than later is. Yeah, it, it you know, it's it just clear that Democrats have made their mind up. All right. That's just that's just a, that's just a fact. And, and what and I'm obviously grateful that he chose that path. And, you know, I, I think that uh Vice President Biden has a good relationship, and I'm, I'm hopeful that they can land this plane, you know, without being too bumpy. Yeah. 
Okay, that's a note to end on. Uh, James, thank you. Uh, you know, tell Mary to take care of herself. Uh, we'll be with you again next week. And I want to thank all of you for listening. And please rate, review, and and always be generous on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. This is Al Hunt saying goodbye for Politics War Room 2020.